The sermon text today takes us back into our study of 1 Thessalonians, where uh, we're moving in this week's passage from really the first half of the letter of 1 Thessalonians, which is basically chapters 1 through 3, where Paul gave a lot of autobiographical information about his own ministry among the church in Thessalonica about six months before he wrote the letter. And we're moving from that into the second half of the book of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul now urges the church, in view of much of what he's already said, to keep pressing forward, to keep pressing forward as the people of God with a certain approach to life that aims above everything else to please not just yourself, but to please the Lord. So our passage can be found on page 987 if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles. And hear now the word of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a a kid, uh, there was one summer I recall, I think it was in 1999, when a new game show hit the airwaves to become, at least for a time, one of the most watched TV programs in the country. Uh, The game show was called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I'm sure some of you remember it. I have no idea if it's still on today. But at the time, it attracted such a large viewership because it was the first game show ever that offered a million-dollar top prize. Now, the format of the show was pretty basic. The contestant was asked a series of multiple-choice questions by the host, and for each question that he or she answered correctly, His or her take-home prize progressively increased, as did the difficulty of the questions they were asked. But at any point in the game, in your upward climb to a million dollars, as the pressure began to mount, you could call it quits and take home the amount of money you had already secured. Now, if you did that and you charted that course, you wouldn't get a million dollars, but you could still walk away with a sizable prize. But if you decided to risk it, and continued on to answer a question that you weren't confident of, well, then you ran the risk of losing much, if not all, of what you already gained and walking away with far less than what you would have had had you called it quits. Now, watching the show as a kid with my family, we often played along. We debated about the answers to each of the multiple choice questions that were asked, and when the contestants were faced with that decision, do I take the amount of money I've already secured, or do I risk it and, 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 and press on to, to, to potentially a greater prize, well, we would debate among ourselves at home, what would we do? I recall thinking to myself at the time as a kid that I probably would have stopped after one or two questions when there was like $1,000 on the line because I could have bought everything that I wanted for that kind of dough. But for the contestants, this was always the question. 
do I, do I bow out now and rest in all what I've already secured, or do I press on to something better? Now, while there is a lot of money, to be sure, at stake in that decision, friends, there's even more at stake in facing the question in our own discipleship of whether or not to take the off-ramp or to keep on pressing forward. You see, in our own walk with Christ, the Bible presses us from start to finish to keep going, to keep pressing on to greater and greater maturity. We're summoned, for example, in the words of Paul from 2 Corinthians, to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And to do that requires that we assume in our own discipleship a lifelong posture of always growing, always learning, always repenting in humility, and always seeking to bring our thoughts and desires and actions in conformity with God's will. And although all of us will walk through valleys and droughts in our own discipleship, there never reaches a point when it's okay to stop repenting or stop learning and simply content content ourselves to coast. The off-ramp in discipleship is never an option because sanctification, that is growing in holiness, as we'll talk about in a moment, is just not an option for disciples of Christ. Instead, it's part and parcel to how we are called to live as disciples of Christ all the days of our lives. And in the passage before us, this is the essence of Paul's exhortation, his command, what he presses the church in Thessalonica to do. Now, you may recall from our previous studies in 1 Thessalonians, to set the context once again for us, that that Paul had been quite worried about the church in Thessalonica. He was quite worried about their spiritual growth. He was anxious that perhaps they had taken the off-ramp in their own discipleship, or worse than that, that they'd abandoned Christ altogether. But fortunately, Paul was relieved of those fears when his companion Timothy returned to him, having just been in Thessalonica himself, and reported to Paul that fortunately the church in Thessalonica was doing well. It's that visit and the subsequent report from Timothy that prompts Paul to write the entirety of 1 Thessalonians in the first place. But though Paul is relieved from Timothy's report, he still knows that the church in Thessalonica, like us, still has work to do. They're still lacking in some ways. There are still plenty of areas in which they need to grow. And in the text before us, Paul focuses first on the importance of continual spiritual growth, and then second, the importance of growing and maturing specifically in a biblical sexual ethic. And so our big idea this morning as we look at the passage before us is very simple. Don't neglect your sanctification. Don't neglect your sanctification. As we work through the passage, there's two questions that we're going to ask. The first is, what is sanctification? If we're not supposed to neglect it, we better know what it is, first of all. And then second, how does sanctification apply to the delicate issue that Paul addresses first in this passage of human sexuality? That'll be the second question we ask. So first, what is sanctification? And then second, how does sanctification apply to human sexuality? So let's start with this first question, what sanctification? (laughs) Well, in the opening two verses, Paul addresses this question. Now, in in the ESV, the word sanctification, you might notice in your passage, is used explicitly in verse 3, when Paul begins to apply this to the issue of human sexuality. But the the broad idea of sanctification is present right from the get-go in verse 1, when Paul talks about walking with God. 
You see, sanctification, if you don't know what that means, refers to our progressive spiritual growth in God over the course of a lifetime. Uh, literally in Greek, the word sanctification comes from the root word holy. Similar in Latin too. We just read, we just uh, saying sanctus, sanctus, which in Latin also means holy. Sanctus, sanctification, gets at this the idea of holy. And at its core, sanctification gets at our progressive growth in holiness over the course of our entire lives. Now, on the one hand, it's true that when we become Christians, we become holy in God's eyes. Objectively speaking, when we become Christians and we put our faith in Christ, our sin is pardoned or forgiven, and we are considered in God's eyes justified saints. But then, for as many days as God gives us on this earth, the challenge is for us to grow in becoming who we already are. We're called to mature as the people of God by learning more and more to say no to sin, to hate sin, and say yes to righteousness. And as we do that, more and more we grow slowly and sometimes painfully in holiness over the course of our lives. And it's this topic of sanctification that Paul is consumed by throughout the latter half of 1 Thessalonians. As we get into chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see in the coming weeks how Paul calls upon his readers, you and I as well, to grow in holiness, to grow in our distinctiveness, our set-apartness in everything from sexual ethics, which we're talking about today, to work, and even our outlook on death. But before we look at the first of those issues, human sexuality, which Paul focuses on in verses 3 through 8, let's understand a little bit more about what he tells us about the essence of sanctification. And the first thing Paul tells us in verse 1 is pretty simple. Sanctification is absolutely necessary for the Christian. Now, I recall um, joking with my wife, as I often do, that whenever something needs to get done around the house, she's rarely all that direct with me. Um, often she says something like, Andrew, you know, we really need to tackle the yard. After 12 years of marriage, I know that her intent isn't to start a conversation about how we should collaborate together about the yard and tackle it as a team. Instead, it's a friendly way of saying, I'm not giving you an option, go take care of the yard. Uh, we should is really go and do yourself. Well, when the passage opens, we hear Paul address the church in Thessalonica with the, the kind of warm and friendly tone that we've grown accustomed to in the letter thus far. And yet, as warm and friendly as he is, don't miss the fact that when he asks and urges the church to walk with God and please God, he's not presenting this as an optional path for Christians, as if those who are serious about their faith can do that, while everyone else can just kind of take the off-ramp after they've gone to Jacob's Westminster Standards class, and then all will be well. For one thing, Paul tells us explicitly in verse 1 that they ought to keep walking with God and keep pressing forward more and more. In the Greek, that word translated ought highlights the absolute divine necessity of something, in this case of pressing forward into greater maturity. Coasting or taking the proverbial off-ramp is just not an option. And then to add to this command, we read in verse 1 how Paul's urging comes at the behest of somebody else. It comes at the behest of the Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator notes rightly that Paul's whole tone here is diplomatic. 
in the sense that he's urging his readers to continued growth, continued maturity, not merely as a brother in Christ, although he is their brother, but specifically here as an official representative, as a diplomat of sorts of the kingdom of God and of King Jesus. Again, when Paul says, urges his readers to continue walking with God, this isn't an option. This is a royal edict from a king of kings. Now, it's important to note, and we're going to come back and hit this point hard over and over again, that it's never by their sanctification, it's never by our sanctification that we're made right with God, as if there reaches a point when we've done enough, and only then God will approve of us. Just a moment ago, we mentioned that Paul's instructions here pertain to what we call the sanctification of believers, not their justification, which Paul assumes is true of everyone who trusts in Christ. It's certainly not the case that that they'll be made right the more they do, but it is true that their sanctification and our sanctification demonstrates whether we really get it or not, whether we've really grasped the fundamentals of the gospel through faith, and therefore, it's still really important for us to home in on. So, sanctification is important, but as Paul continues into verse 2, he tells us something else about the essence of sanctification. He tells us that sanctification is fueled by listening to God's instructions. In verse 2, Paul writes this. He says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul and his companions, Timothy and Silvanus, uh, were in Thessalonica some six months earlier, one of the main things they did was teach the church. They instructed the church. They, They catechized the church in the basics of the gospel and what it means to walk as a disciple of Christ. And the church, fortunately, listened to Paul and his words. We heard earlier in 1 Thessalonians 1 that they even imitated Paul in their discipleship as they learned to mature and say no to sin and yes to righteousness, even when they faced hard things in their walk. Now, in verse 2, Paul wants them to remember those instructions he gave them when he was present with them six months ago, because he's about to go over many of those instructions again in what follows in the second half of the letter. But he also wants them to remember how they responded to those instructions. You see, they matured as disciples, and they endured a great deal of suffering because they listened to those instructions. They took those instructions seriously. And it's that kind of posture, friends, that fuels our sanctification too. I'll tell you a story. Earlier last week, I sat down one evening to play a board game with my son. Um, and when we had set up everything, I was trying to remember all of the instructions to the game, and um, I couldn't remember everything, but my son started to explain to me with confidence how to play. That's true, I couldn't remember everything or, or all the rules of the game, but I knew right away that he was just kind of making things up. Um, so I began to probe and, and try to correct him here and there, but it quickly became clear that he didn't want to go along with the actual rules of the game. He just wanted to play his way, and as confusing as, and irrational as that was, um, I decided, you know what, there's not a lot at stake here, so I'll just kind of go along with it. But when it comes to something of much greater consequence, namely our sanctification, we can't just change the instructions or the rules to make things more manageable for us. 
You see, sanctification is fueled by listening to God's instructions, by taking God at His Word, even when, that, even when those instructions are in tension with the spirit of our age. And that's especially the case in the area of human sexuality, which we're going to study in a moment. But even when those instructions are in tension with the truth claims of our world, we can't just pull down those instructions to make them more manageable for us. So how do you relate with God's instructions in your own sanctification? In your own sanctification, do you find that you're actually a humble student, willing and ready to be corrected and trained by whatever is good and true and righteous? Or are there instead areas of life where it's more often your tendency to disregard God's instructions or or to pull down God's instructions to make them cater to your own ambitions and desires and presuppositions? Do you conform yourself to God's instructions, or do you expect God to conform Himself and His instructions to you? Now, ultimately, what this question gets at is what Paul mentioned back in verse 1, when he told us in passing that sanctification also has a certain aim. Notice again in verse 1 that Paul connects this important idea of walking with God throughout the totality of our lives with the ultimate goal of pleasing God. Friends, this is why sanctification doesn't have an off-ramp. This is why we keep growing and maturing and conforming ourselves to God's instructions, because ultimately, it's not about pleasing ourselves. It's not about you. It's about the King of the universe. It's this aim that lies at the heart of sanctification throughout the Bible as well. For example, in Psalm 69, 30-31, David declares, I will praise the name of the Lord with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving because this pleases the Lord. And in Colossians 3.20, Paul seeks to motivate our obedience to the fifth commandment, the commandment that calls us to honor father and mother by reminding us that when we do that, that pleases the Lord. So, who are you ultimately seeking to please? One commentator, Gene Green, offers, I think, a helpful litmus test on this question when he writes, quote, pleasing God does not mean anything so mundane as being pleasant towards Him, but rather points to serving Him in such a way that makes His interests a person's primary ambition. So, whose interests are you aiming towards? God's interests? God's glory or your own? So, in the first two verses of our passage then, Paul dives into this big topic of sanctification. He tells us, among other things, that sanctification is really important. It's important that we attend to that for our own souls. He reminds us that sanctification is fueled only when we're listening to God's instructions and taking them to heart, and then sanctification above all else aims not to please you and me, but to please the Lord. But again, Paul's goal here in articulating all of these important things about sanctification isn't just to give us some theoretical musings about sanctification. He tells us about these things so that he can then apply what he said to various areas of life throughout the second half of 1 Thessalonians. And the first area of life that he dips into in verses 3 through 8 is perhaps one of the most delicate issues we could think of. It's the issue of human sexuality. 
So this leads to the second point, which is the second major question we're addressing in our sermon. How does sanctification apply to human sexuality or a sexual ethic? Now, as we begin to consider all of what Paul is about to tell us in these passages or in, the, in these verses, specifically in verses three through six, it's important that we understand something about the cultural environment into which Paul's writing. Now, you may remember, we've talked about this in, in previous sermons in 1 Thessalonians, that the people that Paul's writing to are recent converts out of um, not Judaism, but recent converts probably out of paganism. These are Gentile Christians that he's speaking to. The majority of those in the church had likely not converted out of Judaism. There might have been a few of them, but the majority had not, in which case they would have already had a solid, well-established ethical mooring in the Old Testament and in the Ten Commandments. Instead, though, as Gentile Christians, the majority of those in the church that Paul's writing to had probably been reared in a Greco-Roman mindset and practices that looked at the issue of human sexuality very, very differently from Christians or Jews. Now, to give just one example, there are many examples we can marshal here, but just to give one example of how, how uh, the surrounding culture viewed matters of human sexuality, it was generally understood in the Greco-Roman world among almost everyone that men specifically couldn't and shouldn't be expected to control themselves. Uh, the Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero captured these expectations in a nutshell when he wrote, quote, if anyone thinks that young men should be forbidden to have affairs, he is very strict indeed. It was expected that in addition to wives whose only purpose was to bear legitimate children and to manage the household, that men would also have concubines and mistresses as well. It was a terribly immoral world that shared many of the marks of our own age as well. There really is nothing new under the sun. But though Paul addresses a people who were reared in this kind of world, at no point here or in any other letter that he writes does he cede any assumptions or approve of any of the practices that belong to that world. He doesn't capitulate at all in articulating that those who belong to Jesus Christ have to have a different approach to matters of human sexuality. God's people, through Christ, we've been set apart as holy. And in verses 3 through 6, Paul begins to tell us how a set-apart and holy people approach sexual ethics in a holy and set-apart way. So if you're looking at verses 3 through 6, notice that there are basically three commands that Paul issues on this topic, which tell us a lot about what holiness in this area looks like. And the first command, which we find in verse 3, is probably the most general one. It's that we abstain from sexual immorality. Again, this is probably the most basic thing that could be said about holiness in this area. Because the word that's translated in the ESV, sexual immorality, is something of a catch-all word in the Greek that refers to basically any kind of sexual immorality that takes place outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. It covers adultery, it covers premarital relations, it covers homosexual relations, it covers prostitution, and the list goes on and on and on. That's just a few of the things that it covers. But whatever the particular manifestation, Paul commands that the holy people of God, you and I, friends, that we abstain from all of these things, which in the Greek literally means that we keep those things at a distance, 
It's similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 5.3 when he writes, uh, sexual immorality and all impurity and all covetousness must not even be named among you. And then in 1 Corinthians 6.8 where Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. Don't give sexual immorality, whatever its form, whatever its manifestation, any quarter whatsoever in your lives. So that's the first and perhaps most basic thing that Paul has to tell us. But as Paul continues, we then learn that holiness in this area goes well beyond the practices, the external practices we avoid or keep at a distance, because holiness also makes demands on our desires as well. Notice in verse 4 that Paul writes that each person should learn to control their own bodies and then adds that we not be carried away in the, quote, passion of lust like the Gentiles. You see, in contrast to the spirit of our age and the spirit of the age, really, in which Paul wrote too, that encourages us to explore and then embrace virtually every desire in pursuit of the authentic self, the Bible teaches us that that approach is going to kill you in the end. In Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, a, a very good book, I've referenced it um, in a previous sermon before, he, he talks about something very similar. He notes that for much of human history, it was generally understood, it was taken as a, as a general assumption that if you want to flourish in this world as an individual, that requires that we conform ourselves, our wills, our desires, our habits, to certain ethics and norms outside of ourselves. But in modern thought, this is inverse. This is twisted on its head. It's no longer the person who needs to be conformed to the external institutions or ethics. It's those things that need to be conformed to the individual for the individual to live out their so-called authentic self. And as a result, we often find today that virtually every desire is baptized and blessed in our world, even becoming identity markers for people. Long are past the days of recognizing that our fallen desires are sin and need to be placed under the authority of God and His Word. But recognize that even if those desires that are more at the forefront of the so-called sexual revolution aren't desires that you struggle with, the command still stands for all of us to bring our sinful desires, whatever they are, and however innocent they might seem, under the authority of God and His Word, and then to exercise better self-control for the sake of our own sanctification. Now, for some of you, that might mean something as simple as putting accountability measures in place on your computer, or putting parental blocks on your streaming services so as to give no quarter whatsoever to those sinful desires that lurch from your heart when you're alone. In last week's sermon, Jacob mentioned or talked a little bit about practicing righteousness in secret rather than flaunting our righteousness before the world, and of course that's true, but there are also some things that are done in secret that shouldn't be done in secret, things that need to be exposed to the light. And maybe for some of you, there are certain desires that you're not submitting under the authority of God and His Word because no one sees it, and it doesn't seem like one of those big issues, and so it doesn't seem like a problem. But if that's you, know that God sees in secret. And whatever ways we let our desires control us, specifically here our lustful desires, Paul reminds us that's not who we are in Jesus Christ. Instead, as Paul points out in verse 5, that's the path that the Gentiles who do not know God walk. 
Now, this is subtle, but this is actually pretty significant. It's remarkable what Paul's saying here in verse 5. Remember, Paul is writing to a predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish audience, and he's telling them not to act like Gentiles. How does that make any sense? Well, it only makes sense if we understand that in becoming part of the family of God, in becoming the church of God, that we as Christians assume a new identity. We don't belong to those who are marked as being controlled by their passions. They are those who are control- we, we are those who are controlled by God, who have already, objectively speaking, been set apart as holy, who follow Christ wherever He goes, who know God and are known by God, and we would do well to remember ourselves and our own sanctification all the days of our lives, who we are too. And know that in repenting of our sinful desires, whatever they are, and in slowly and yes, imperfectly bringing our desires into greater conformity with God's Word, we are practicing growing in who we already, objectively speaking, are. So Paul talks about here our external actions. He talks about our internal desires. And then finally, in verse 6, he issues his final command on this issue namely that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, while issues of of human sexuality in our world are often considered matters that are entirely private and individual, Paul sees things very, very differently. It's interesting that the Greek verb, if you're looking at your text translated in verse 6, that no one wrong his brother is literally an economic word that elsewhere in the New Testament is translated as defrauding somebody. You see, to transgress your brother in matters of sexual ethics is literally to defraud your brother. And in that, Paul understands that by violating the seventh commandment, the commandment against sexual immorality and adultery, we are also, in a sense, violating the eighth commandment as well, the commandment against theft. So how does that work? Well, in the case of adultery, that's pretty obvious. You're taking what belongs, in a sense, to someone else. But that's also true in every other form of sexual immorality as well. Just think about one issue, the issue of pornography, for example. Pornography is produced by stealing the honor of somebody else for economic and depraved purposes, and then the one who watches that stuff assumes completely unrealistic expectations, and studies have shown becomes incapable of giving love to a real person who deserves that love. But whatever the issue, understand that issues of sexual immorality are never simply private. There are ripple effects that radiate out and carry all kinds of repercussions, most importantly, spiritual repercussions in our relationships with real flesh and blood people. Now, of course, none of that's to say, and this is important to highlight, none of that is to say that sexual immorality in any of its forms is somehow beyond the reach of God's grace or His renewing power in the Holy Spirit, not in the slightest understand that through Christ and Christ alone, our violations of the seventh commandment and the eighth commandment and every other commandment have been covered in full, and there is no one to condemn us before God. For those of you who feel deep shame for pleasing yourselves rather than God in these ways, know that you're not defined by these things. You are in Christ, holy and pure in God's economy, in God's kingdom. But in issuing these commands… Paul would have us stay the course, even when everything in this world would seek to pull us this way and that, especially on issues of human sexuality. 
But to keep us walking in the right direction, especially when temptations rage from within us and outside us, Paul concludes his thoughts on this topic by bringing in the vertical dimension of life, as it were, to strengthen our commitment to holiness. Notice that in verses six through eight, second half of verse six through the end of our passage, Paul brings slowly each person of the Godhead to bear on our sanctification. God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit. And first, in the second half of verse 6, he tells us that the Lord, which here is a, a specifically a reference to Christ, God the Son, is an avenger. Friends, understand that one day there will come a time when, as Revelation 19 puts it, the one who rides on a white horse, who's called faithful and true, will come to judge the world as King of kings and Lord of lords. And every sin and unrighteousness, whatever it is, that's not covered by His blood will still have to be paid for by blood. Now, of course, all of us fail to uphold every single commandment all the time, but if we brazenly flout God's commands on this issue or on any other issue and chart our own course by bringing God's instructions down to us, this is a statement that should frighten us. As Greg Veal puts it, quote, such people who confess to be Christians but live like Gentiles will be judged like unbelieving Gentiles. But then in verse 7, Paul motivates us in our sanctification in yet another way, by bringing us not to the end of the Christian life, but by, to the beginning of the Christian life, where he reminds us once again that we were called by God to higher and better purposes than living a life that's indistinguishable from our unbelieving neighbors. You see, when we become Christians, friends, it wasn't because of anything we did. It was because God wooed us through the Word and Spirit and called us to Himself. We have the privilege, friends, if you're in Christ, of having been summoned by God Himself. And Paul reminds us that in that calling, we were set apart as holy from the world. We're holy, chosen from before the foundation of the world, and as such, we're called to walk in a way that's befitting to that great honor that's been bestowed upon us, and then learn to control our bodies and our passions, as Paul says, in honor accordingly. And then finally, in verse 8, Paul moves from Christ's second coming at the end and God the Father's call at the beginning to God the Spirit's presence with us now. And he tells us that should we chart our own course in matters of sexual ethics or in any other matter, we will have disregarded and even grieved the Holy Spirit who dwells with us. Now, by drawing in this reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit, we're also reminded that in living out these difficult divine instructions, particularly the seventh commandment and everything the Bible tells us about human sexuality, friends, understand we don't do so alone. We have the Spirit of God who drives us to repentance when we fail who stirs our hearts so that we desire to please God in the first place, and who then empowers us to plod along in following God and His instructions in whatever the issue, regardless of the cost. Now, when pulling back the curtain to show us that matters of human sexuality are lived out in the theater of God's world with God Himself as witness, we also come full circle to what Paul told us back in verse 1 when he told us that the essence of sanctification is to please God. And so think about that in light of this specific issue of human sexuality. Do you desire to please God in this issue? Friends, in our sanctification, 
We don't just live for ourselves, and God's mission is decidedly not to baptize every decision we make with blessing. We live in God's world. We live as God's people. We have responsibilities before God, but it's in relationship with God and in living according to His commands where He promises to satisfy us in a way that would never be the case if we charted our own course. And even the most private and personal aspects of our lives, we are called to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and walk in such a way that God charts for our good and one that's fitted to who He calls us to be. So as we prepare to close, I want to leave us with this final thought, final takeaway, and it's this. Be teachable in your sanctification. Be teachable in your sanctification. Understand that as we press forward in our sanctification, we press forward together as a body, there will always be times when we discover areas of our lives that haven't been brought into conformity with God and His Word as well as they could be. And when that happens, sometimes insecurity can set in within us. And sometimes we stubbornly dig in our heels and act as if God's Word doesn't get to speak into that area of life. God's Word doesn't get to dictate terms in that area. But as we've seen, even in the most intimate area of our lives, God gets to set the terms. And so as we press forward and as we seek to grow in holiness, in distinctiveness, be willing, friends, be teachable to have your habits and your convictions, as ingrained as they are, to be reformed by the unchanging instructions of God found in His Holy Word. Only then, friends, will we truly grow in holiness, in the holiness that God wills for our lives. Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, You have hard things to tell us in Your Word many times. Lord, we're thankful that in our sanctification that You've given us Your Spirit, and yet we also pray that we would be more attentive to Your Word by Your Spirit in areas like human sexuality and in other areas that uh, we might not be walking the best way in. Lord, I pray that you would drive those who need to be driven to repentance to repentance by your word and spirit. I pray that those of us who perhaps feel shame in our lives right now would remember that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for all of us, Lord, would we pursue sanctification with the seriousness, with the gravitas that it deserves according to your holy, holy, holy word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.